We're in a series called Honoring God and More. It was birthed while we were going paragraph by paragraph through the book of Hebrews. And several titles to those Sundays, the word honoring was in there, honoring the God who is working, honoring marriage. Of course, we had to preach the rest of the story. The next Sunday was honoring singleness. And the whole book is all about honoring Jesus. Uh, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the temple, greater than the tabernacle. The text we're looking at today is talking about how he is greater than the priesthood. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. If we could look at that right quick. The last verse of Hebrews 6. If you didn't bring your Bible, the text is in your bulletin. It's talking about hope. The hope we have in God's promise, the hope we have in the character of Jesus. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Jesus had relatives, natural relatives, in the tribe of Levi. Uh, John the Baptist was his cousin, I believe. Uh, his father, Zechariah, was a priest. But Jesus, uh, through his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, came through the lineage uh, primarily of Judah, the tribe of royalty, the tribe of kings, the tribe that was promised a son of David who would reign forever. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And he is a priest, though, not after the order of David. David was not a priest, and not after the order of Levi or Aaron, even though he had kinfolks in that stream of the tribe of Levi. But he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who's a priest of the Most High God, who predates by centuries David. And Abraham met him on the way back from a victorious battle. And we read about it here in Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, or king of Shalom, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom all Abraham also gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, king of righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he's the king of shalom, the king of peace. Verse 3, without father, we don't know where this guy came from, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. So Melchizedek was a priest. Nobody knows where he came from. They just know that Abraham met him and honored him with a tenth, a tithe of the spoils of what they had recovered from their enemies. Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, that's the priestly tribe, who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. The twelve tribes came from Father Abraham. Verse 6, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So he blessed Abraham, being greater than Abraham. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. Melchizedek did. Of whom it is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So tithing predated the law, as did prayer and singing and sacrifices and circumcision and numerous other things. Verse 11, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, Jesus, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, and then he quotes from verse 4 of Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the revelation of your greatness. We honor you in song and with our lives and with our teaching. Lord, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would use us like never before. Thank you, Lord, for the things you're doing in the earth, the things you're doing in Granbury and beyond. For your glory, Lord, and yours alone we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, happy Orthodox Forgiveness Sunday. The Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, the Orthodox churches call this Forgiveness Sunday. It's the day before Lent begins, that season of self-denial before the resurrection, before what they call Easter. Jesus trashed Ishtar's special day, and so the name Easter often is applied to it. Around here, we call it Resurrection Day. That is what that day is. So leading up to that, they go through self-denial, but they figure self-denial does no good if you have unforgiveness in your heart. Luke 6.37 ends with this little phrase, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. It's like the Lord withholds the joy of having your sins forgiven if you're not willing to extend that joy to others. It, it stops the flow. Verse 38 of Luke, following these words, forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So you want a gross blessing or a net blessing? It's proportionate to the openness of your heart and hand to give the Lord. But it's based on forgiveness. You can tithe and give sacrificially and reap no benefits because of unforgiveness in your heart. What is forgiveness? It is giving. It is giving up the right for revenge, giving up the right to hold a grudge. It is giving mercy to those that are not worthy. That is forgiveness. It's giving before someone is worthy. 
And if we do that, Jesus in another place said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. He also said, freely you have received, freely give. Who knows, God's blessings, all of them are free. And yet he blesses obedience. But it all starts with his mercy. He first loved us. So in our text today, we see tithing mentioned. So I just want to focus on tithing for the next few minutes. Tithing gets a bad rap. It gets accused of, of being initiated by the law, a, a, something God revealed to Moses. And meanwhile, we have Abraham tied into Melchizedek. We have in another place in Genesis, Jacob promising to give the Lord the tithe. Right there at Bethel, he came back and visited and said, Lord, I'm going to give you a tithe of all my blessings. So today we're going to talk about honoring tithing. Our first point is in your bulletin. Tithing preexisted the law of Moses, as did several other things the law included. The law included the Sabbath, Shabbat, animal sacrifices, began when God killed the animals to clothe the nakedness of Mr. and Mrs. Adam. And we have prayer, Seth. When he was born, men began to call on the name of the Lord. We have tithing. We see first mention in Abraham giving Melchizedek the tithe of the spoils of God's blessing in his life. We have faith. Abraham declared to be righteous because he believed God. We have circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant. We have the Passover, which was the feast where Jews up to this day every year remember their deliverance from slavery out of the oppression of the Egyptians. And it's a celebration of God passing over. If you read that in its context, it's amazing. They were to kill a lamb over a what? What was that? It's called a basin. The Hebrew word for basin is also the word for threshold. So they were to kill a lamb in the threshold of their houses, every house. They killed the lamb on the threshold, and then they were to take the blood of the lamb, put it on the two doorposts, and the lintel, the upper piece. You have blood in four places, the upper post, the side post, and the basin where it was killed. It's interesting. He doesn't say take a basin and kill the lamb. He says kill the lamb and dip the hyssop in the basin or in the threshold. And said, where I see the blood, I will pass over that house, and the enemy will not come near you. When you dig into that, the imagery is God doesn't pass over your house. It's the, it's the judgment of death over your house. He passes over the threshold of your house to keep the death out. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So through the blood of the lamb, he passes over the barrier of sin into our lives to keep God's judgment out. Man, I'm getting sidetracked. We have singing in Exodus 15. We have singing. And uh, some of these things were fulfilled, though. The Sabbath, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he is our Shabbat. He is our blessing. The Sabbath didn't get changed to Sunday. The Sabbath is always the seventh day of the week. That's what it means. But Jesus is our Sabbath, so we can rest in him every day. Animal sacrifices were fulfilled. We saw that earlier in Hebrews. 
He is the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb who died for the sins of the world. His cousin John the Baptist announced him as such. Uh, We have circumcision without hands, circumcision of the heart, which interestingly enough was also part of the law of Moses. It wasn't just circumcision of the flesh, but God will for his people's hearts to be circumcised. So the new covenant has that fulfilled in Christ. And so the symbol of our covenant is water baptism. And Christ is our Passover. But these other things, I don't see fulfillment of them. If you know where those fulfillments are, let me know. We still sing. We still pray. We still exercise faith. And believers for centuries have still, say it, tithe. All right. Don't tune me out. You may have a strong message against tithing. Hear me out. Don't tune me out or hear me out. We can still be friends if you disagree with me, but hear me out. Second point, after rebuking religious people who tithe meticulously, I mean, they tithe their salt and pepper, but neglected more important matters, Jesus said tithing should be done. In Matthew 23, 23 and 24, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. I think I kind of see forgiveness in that, don't you? But these are the things which you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. They tithe to the, to the smallest farthing, but don't you cross them. You're going to be on probation for the rest of your life. Uh, it's my understanding this thing of straining at gnats was done by Bedouins when drinking a beverage. They'd suck it through their teeth because bugs were a real problem. So they the beverage and it would catch the gnats. So the imagery here is kind of bizarre to us, but swallowing camels while keeping gnats out. The Lord's using hyperbole just to get a point across. It's kind of funny. (laughs) I thought it was anyway. Luke 11, 42, he said, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb. And is it herb or herb? And neglect, everybody said both. And neglect justice (laughs) and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he never said not to tithe. But he definitely is saying there are things more important than tithing. Who has ever been to church in Peaster? Population of Peaster when I visited was 70 people. Church, 1,200 at that time. And before every offering, Pastor John Anderson, who wore jeans and tennis shoes or a track suit, he would give you four reasons not to give. By the time he got done, you wanted to give. If you're not a believer, we do not want you to give in this offering today. God wants your heart, not your pocketbook, and we don't want you to think the gospel is for sale, and we don't want you to think all the church is about is money. So please do not give in the offering if you're not a believer. If you can't do this cheerfully, please do not give in this offering. If you do not have it, please do not give in this offering. And the fourth one was a biggie. If you have unforgiveness in your heart, please do not give in this offering. We do not want our giving contaminated by your unforgiveness. (laughs) Pretty strong. So there are weightier matters. God cares about our hearts, right? 
They're weightier matters, and I think that's the point Jesus is getting across here. A third point today, Jesus told his followers to make disciples, teaching them to observe everything he commanded. He commanded. He said in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, all authority, all power in heaven and on earth, and I believe that includes under the earth, has been given to me. Therefore, because that's true, go and make disciples of all the nations. That word is the word ethnos. It means every ethnic group needs teaching, needs discipling, needs evangelism. Baptizing them, what? The nations, the ethnic groups, the people of other languages. In the name of the Father and of the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ is what we say when we baptize here, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey or observe everything I have commanded you. Unlike some, Jesus did not come speaking in the ideal. He came giving commands, teachings, showing us how to live. He did not come as God's word made flesh to speak meaningless platitudes. But you can't do it without his help. So his words put us on our face. Lord, help. I can't forgive without your help. Lord, help. I don't want to extend mercy. I need your help. Lord, help. So his word draws us nearer to him. Read the red and pray for the power. Who's heard that expression? No longer under the curse of the law, the giving of the early church exceeded tithing. Look at this. All believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone as he had need. If you, if you read Acts 2, the birth of the church, that first day, 3,000 people who were from out of town, from other countries, became believers and were baptized. So, did you want them to go back home without having been discipled? No, they stayed right there. And it was not easy hosting them. The town of Asbury has experienced a revival, but it was not easy for the whole town to host thousands of people. Great town. I, I, I believe that town's going to be blessed beyond their dreams. So when God uses us, we get our hands dirty helping others. So they go way beyond tithing. They're selling their stuff. And, of course, people who are here from out of town, in Jerusalem from out of town, are going back home to sell stuff as well so that this community, which lasted about eight years, could continue. So it wasn't a model for every church to live as a commune. I used to live in a church trailer park. Trust me, it's not the will of God. <laughs> so don't get any ideas about our back acreage here. The Lord wants us to live in the midst of the unbelievers so we can be a light. Two chapters later, this lifestyle is continuing. Acts 4.34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. And if you pledged it, you better give it. And if when you give it, you reinforce the pledge, yes, this was everything I got for that 10 acres, you might be taken out. By the Lord. Ananias and Sapphira learned the hard way. So this church was a crucible for eight years of discipling. And then these people went back home to establish churches in their areas. We see the closest example of that in our day is what's happening in the Ukraine. 
here just a few weeks ago, Boris Grishenko shared his church is the largest or was the largest messianic congregation in the world, has scattered for safety. Meanwhile, the home base has not scattered. So they continue to meet. But he's got people all over Europe. And so as a result, in the last year, 100 congregations have been planted. Yeah. So if a scattering comes, could it be that God wants to use you somewhere else to establish his people? Not by yourself. He does it in teams. So that's that point. And then today, Abraham, the father of our faith, tied to Melchizedek, king of righteousness and peace, priest of the Most High God, who was a true picture of our Lord Jesus. So you could say Abraham tithed to someone who was Jesus. Now, some theologians believe he was Jesus. Others believe he was the angel of the Lord. Others believe he was a theophany. God manifested in the flesh before Jesus came. The bottom line is we don't know where he came from, but we know he was a king and a priest, king of righteousness, king of peace, priest of the Most High God. The hippies used to say, there's no high like the Most High. <laughs> we read this earlier, Hebrews 7, 1 through 4, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, First being by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made unto the Son of God abide the priest forever. Now consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. We're talking about honoring tithing today. Tithing gets a rap that I think is unjust, you cannot say with full assurance it has no place in the New Testament believer's life. So the question is, how do I start? Well, we have this promise in Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your bars will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. There's a blessing when we put the Lord first. So what I have done since I was a teenager, I learned it in the long run. If you do it first, it is easier to do. If you give, we call it return your tithe to the Lord last. Let's say you get a sum of money for a blessing of some sort, maybe for the work of your hands or whatever. If you leave it till last and put all your bills first, it's going to be hard. And I believe if you put the Lord first... He'll give you wisdom on what to do with the 90%. With God's blessing, you can do more with 90% than you can with 100%. Next big question, why should I tie to the local church? The local church doesn't need all that money. Well, I'm glad you asked that. I've written out my answer. I'm going to try not to go off script. I've been going off script lately, but on this one, I want to be more careful. I believe... This is me talking, that giving to God a tenth of what he's prospered us with through the local church is a New Testament practice and can testify that it works wonderfully. Starting as a teenager, tithing into my local church from my first real job, God has been faithful to enable me and after marriage to us 
to give beyond our tithes every year. It is amazing how we can do more with 90% post-tithe than we can with 100% pre-tithe. So we give it first. We have seen that tithing through the local church makes a functioning church congregation like ours possible without any unscriptural gimmicks or having to preach on giving all the time. When's the last time I spoke on tithing? 2010. As a, as a topic. I may have mentioned it here or there over the years. but <laughs> Tithing through the local church is something that God continues to bless year in and year out. That's why I believe in it. And those who practice it faithfully are blessed. While his blessings are not for sale and no one can do enough to deserve his mercy, the Lord does reward those who tithe consistently. The desire and vision of Generations Church is for the regular expenses and our ongoing ministries to be supported by the faithful tithing of our membership and for church leadership to maintain our spending within the limits of that kind of consistent giving. Congregations that operate otherwise often can be forced to resort to money-raising campaigns. We did have one for the building when we built this place. Thank the Lord, it was paid off in seven years. Uh, others may have to every year have an annual pledge drive to the point they'll mail out invoices. Fish fries, God help Olita Catfish. Maybe that's why they went out of business, competing with nonprofits. Fish fries and making emotional appeals to raise what is necessary just to keep the doors open. Some may yet include raffles and bingo in order to pay their bills, as well as to classify themselves, we saw this in 2020, to have themselves classified as small businesses in order to apply for free government loan money. Lord, help us. Such has never had to be the case at Generations Church. To God be the glory for people who are faithful in their giving. Who thinks the local church should compete with the fundraising marketplace like the Red Cross, United Way, or the Scouts? Should we compete with Olita's Catfish? So we do have fundraisers, but it's for things beyond the operations of Generations Church. It's to help young families send their kids to camp. It's to help unchurched kids' families to send their kids to a youth conference. And you people are so generous in those endeavors. Whenever we do receive special offerings or raise extra funds, it has always been for more than regular expenses and ongoing ministries of Generations. To our faithful givers, we say thank you for your faithfulness. You've helped make this reality possible. Think of what would happen if we all tithe. While there are more important things in every Christ follower's life, like justice, mercy, faith, and the love of God, Jesus did not discourage tithing. Tithing is an ideal opportunity to express living faith in our loving God. St. John of the Cross said, What does it profit you to give God one thing if he asks of you another Consider what it is God wants and then do it. You will, as a result, better satisfy your heart than with that toward which you yourself are inclined. Lord, I thank you for your word. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would be glorified by our lives and in our giving. Thank you, Lord, for our leaders. Continue to use us, Lord, to oversee the resources that come into our trust. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Deciding to tithe can often seem like a difficult choice. House payments, school costs, rising gas prices, medical bills, food and entertainment all compete for the limited funds that we earn, and oftentimes it's much easier to justify these needs than it is to heed the call to give. But this call is not meant as a hindrance to our physical needs. Rather, it is given in the Bible as a way for us to grow closer to God as we trust in His provision. So let's look at three biblical and practical truths that are meant to help us trust God with our finances. Truth number one, all our money belongs to God. Psalm 24.1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. This truth begs the question of not how much of my money should I give, but how much of God's money should I keep for myself? Truth number two. Giving away a portion of our income to the work and ministry of Christ helps us fight covetousness. Wanting things too much is incredibly dangerous for our souls. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus paints a clear picture telling us that we cannot serve both God and money. Truth number three. Tithing and giving beyond regular tithe will help strengthen our faith in God's promises. Philippians 4.19 tells us that God will meet all our needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. The more we find and trust promises like this, the easier tithing becomes because they replace our fear of not having what we need with a reliance on God. And just like these three truths, all the other biblical teachings about money are designed by God help us trust and rely on Him and not on the things that we own. In Matthew 6.21, Jesus tells us, Where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. In terms of money, this is saying that what we invest our money in is a signal of what our hearts are trusting in. So each time we face the decision to give or not to give, remember that it boils down to a faith question. Do I trust God's promises concerning my finances?